alone in speaking about structural reforms. I was looking at um, a speech by Mario Draghi in Sintra in 2015. And uh, in that occasion, he actually uh, gave some statistics. And interestingly, since he joined the ECB as uh, ECB president, uh, every uh, introductory statement at the end of a press conference has ended with a call for uh, more structural reforms. 30% uh, of every uh, executive board member of the ECB speech mentions the term structural reforms. And this compares to only 2% of US uh, Fed uh, governors. So clearly, uh, the crisis had a role to play in this. Um, and structural reforms, in a way, are not a new topic. Um, possibly, it dates back uh, in its in a, as a unified concept, it dates back to the 1990s in a first formulation uh, in John Williamson's book uh, about uh, policy reform and, uh, and what was then named the Washington Consensus, which is a term that often uh, comes up. And since then, a lot of research has actually been carried out on the, on the topic. I have to say that perhaps less research has been carried out on the topic in Europe or in advanced uh, economy settings. There was a lot of research on Latin America, obviously, uh, because of the experiences of the 80s and 90s. There was uh, research a lot on Asia, Southeast Asia, uh, but less so to, a, to an extent uh, in advanced economies, perhaps, of course, aside from the OECD, which has been doing this um, forever. And, um, and a lot of research in my opinion, was somewhat dismissed uh, during the crisis as we were talking about structural reforms, implementing structural reforms, based on this idea that advanced economies are different. And so that there's only so much you can take from the experiences um, of other countries or other parts of the world. Uh, since then, it's been eight, eight to 10 years of the financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis. And I have to say that a lot, of the, uh, a lot of research has been going into this topic of structural reforms uh, on Europe, in Europe, uh, in central banks, at the IMF, uh, at the European Central Bank itself as well, in universities. And, uh, and today we have here representatives in a way of all these different sides of the research that has been going uh, into, into all this. Uh, we have uh, Anna Fontura Gouveia of the Bank of, uh, of Portugal. Uh, Anna is a former colleague of mine, actually. We date back uh, to the times when I was at the European Central Bank. And since then, uh, she's become basically a structural reform guru uh, in Portugal. And she's your go-to person uh, for structural reforms in Portugal. And she's now at the Bank of Portugal. Uh, to my left, we have uh, Paolo Manasse, who's a professor of international economics at uh, University of Bologna. And uh, again, I've known Paolo for, for a bit, and as a matter of fact, we wrote a book, or I wrote a chapter in his book, uh, to be precise, on the topic of structural reforms, but I let him uh, talk about it because I think he will touch uh, upon some of the findings of that book. And uh, last but not least, we have Klaus Masuch from the European Central Bank. Uh, Klaus has both uh, theoretical and practical experience on structural reforms, having been uh, a bit uh, the, the, 
the chief uh, from the ECB side of adjustment or Troika programs. So we saw uh, how uh, this, a lot of the structural reform envelopes uh, got carried out in practice. Uh, uh, but on top of that, he has recently authored or coordinated efforts of uh, an opus manuum of the ECB on the topic of structural reforms, which should be a go-to reference for anyone that writes or looks into these uh, topics, and I think he will uh, touch upon that. Um, just a few housekeeping things before I uh, stop talking. I would ask... Uh, the speakers to speak to be very brief, uh, let's say 10 to 15 uh, minutes to allow for for conversation after for uh, Q and A and conversation afterwards. Uh, the event is live streamed and so it's on the record, um, FYI. And as I said, uh, the Q and A session is at the end, so let the speakers speak. The the final thing that I would ask uh, from you all, uh, but I'm uh, I've been reassured uh, while we were. Uh, outside, ahead of the ahead of the beginning of the lunchtime seminar, is uh, to try and be provocative, let's say, or to to really uh, generate some disagreement. So I wouldn't want, but I'm sure it will not happen, that people leave the room just knowing that structural reforms are good for growth in the long term. There's a lot that has been researched on these topics. What are the problems? When are when do they work? Why do they work? What are the channels? What are the packages sequencing? There's a lot of stuff that can be covered. So try and disagree a bit. Uh, and if you don't, uh, I'll make sure uh, to be the one disagreeing at the end. I would go from my right or left to right. So Anna, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Alessio. Thank you very much for the extremely kind introduction, actually too kind. Um, and thank you all for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you um, at this lunchtime. Um, just for, uh, uh, an initial statement to say that the views that I'm expressing are, are my own. I'm not representing any um, of the institutions that I'm affiliated to. Um, before actually going into the point of structural reforms, I think it's important for us to take a step back and to actually think what do we mean by structural reforms? Because as, as Alessio said in the beginning of uh, in his introductory remarks, indeed, we talk very often about structural reforms, and I'm not sure if we all mean exactly the same thing. Well, when we think about structural reforms, we think about changes in institutions, changes in regulations, and basically, we mean to act on the supply side of the economy. And our ultimate goal is to ensure that we are able to foster potential growth. And this goal in itself is basically a normative goal, which is not necessarily the same thing as ensuring shared prosperity. Sometimes we use both as they are basically interchangeably, but they are not. They are two different goals. Sometimes they concur, sometimes not. And I think this is a huge problem because we tend to think that even if the reforms that we have in mind increase inequality, that then this effect will be temporary or that we take care of it somewhere ahead uh, on the road. And the question is, well, do we or can we? What we see is that this issue of inequality, it's an important issue on moral grounds, but it's actually a crucial point if we think about uh, the functioning of our democracies, for instance. 
And basically, if I look into surveys on EU citizens, on what actually do they have to tell, what we see is that there seems to be a disagreement with current policies. And if we look at top concerns of EU citizens, basically, they pinpoint to social issues, to unemployment, for instance. Unemployment is a top concern for EU citizens. And therefore, I'm not sure that when we think about structural reforms that we are actually focusing, or at least that we are putting as much importance to equity considerations as we are putting on efficiency. And probably we should, we should rethink this because equity is a goal, a goal in itself. The second point I would like to make is that we, the idea I have is that we put too much of, a, of an emphasis on national action. And I'm not saying with this that national action is not relevant. I think it's absolutely crucial. I'm, what I'm saying is that it should go hand in hand with action at EU level. Because what we have is an euro in place, which is actually not working as we expected. Um, there are for sure some flaws that need to be addressed because, well, as it is, it is actually creating diversions. And so the idea that we can go further with risk mitigation and then address risk sharing, in my view, it's a wrong idea. It won't work because we cannot have one without the other. And so that's why I think that at EU level, we need important action. And just to give you two examples, well, I think that we need a stabilization mechanism to actually absorb asymmetric shocks. I think this is absolutely crucial for us to be able to deliver on growth and shared prosperity, even more so because we know that crises, deep crises, leave scars. So that there is an hysteresis effect that actually means that cycles then affect the possibilities that countries have to grow in the future. And there are some countries which are more vulnerable to this crisis than others. So not tackling this issue at EU level is compromising all other efforts at national level. Another issue, well, taxation. I think that for sure, we have taken some steps in that direction. If we think about uh, the digital economy taxation, we are starting at EU level to, to take some steps. But something else must be done, not only on that realm, but for instance, in terms of the, the big elephant in the room, which is tax competition within the EU. There is tax competition within the EU, and that's basically hampering our collective ability to deliver then on shared prosperity. So I could go on forever on what needs to be done at EU level, but I think these are, this cannot be seen as a sequential process, that we first uh, implement national policies and then we think about these risk-sharing mechanisms at EU level. This cannot be. Now, getting to action at national level. There, I think we have two big mistakes uh, from the crisis and that we should learn from them, from them. The very first one is the idea that it can be useful to use EU institutions as a scapegoat, that it can be useful to blame it on the EU to then ensure that we have some structural reforms implemented and that we can just circumvent democratic processes at national level that would eventually lead to a consensus on the policies to take. I think this is very dangerous because 
it, it will basically endanger the very EU project itself and the growth that we are trying to achieve. So I, I, in my view, this is an absolutely uh, crucial point that we shouldn't use uh, the EU as, as a scapegoat. And indeed, again, if you look into survey data, you'd see that those that are against the EU are also those that are against globalization. There's a link there and you cannot simply ignore that link. That link is there for a reason. We have losers from the policies, well, we have losers from globalization, we have losers from other policies that we have been implementing, implementing and if we simply ignore them, we cannot achieve the shared prosperity goal and we endanger the project, the EU project itself and the stability um, of our democracies. And so here the point is that ownership is not a detail, it's something that we need to work on very deeply to be able to achieve uh, the goals that we aim at. And then the second mistake that I think that we, that we have done concerns defining priorities. Simply trying to solve every little problem at national level is impossible. We need to define the big priorities. Well, if you ask me, and again, this is my personal opinion on Portugal, I think the single most important uh, bottleneck that the country faces is education. You know that the share of adults in Portugal that have not completed upper secondary education is above 50%, 5-0, today. So if you compare to the EU average, so the EU average is half of that, 22, 23%. So right there, you have a huge drag on growth. We have done amazing improvements. So if you think about 2006, this was 70%. So two out of three adults would not have completed the post-secondary education. So I'm sure we are on the right path. Um, but together with a co-author, Anna Fernandes, basically we try to simulate with a, with a um, general equilibrium model, what would be the impact of further reducing that 50% share to 40%. And there you can see that well, at least using our model, you could have gains of around 7% of your potential GDP in something like 10, 15 years. This is huge. Another study from Francisco Queiro from Harvard, is um, now at, at NOVA, School of Business and Economics, he basically simulated what would happen to aggregate productivity in Portugal if, you, if our managers, if the educations of our managers would mimic the, the distribution of education of the managers in the US. And basically found that aggregate productivity could be increased by 33%. This may seem like a lot, but the issue is that our problems are huge in, in this realm. So all these gains, I think, are much bigger than what you could, could achieve by blindly deregulating labor markets, for, for instance. I'm not saying that we shouldn't look into labor market institutions, and I think we should, uh, also taking into account the recent challenges in terms of the future of work and so on, but I think that there are priority areas that we need to tackle. And then, of course, I, I, I mentioned to you educational attainment. There is also the issue about educational quality. And there again, Portugal made a huge progress. If you look at PISA results, you would see that indeed um, the quality of education in Portugal has been improving in all areas and is one of the countries that improved the most. But if you look closer, what you see is that 
the high achievers, so the good students, they actually compare very well with their OECD peers. So they actually overperform, outperform their OECD peers. The problem is that those students that have repeated at least one grade, those, they underperform their OECD peers. And that means that our education system is doing something wrong there. And that's a concrete issue that you need to tackle because it will actually boost both efficiency and equity at the same time. Another priority area, resource allocation. We know that in Portugal we had a huge problem of, of resource misallocation. We know that, for instance, the non-tradable sector actually absorbed a lot of capital, a lot of financing, a lot of investment, and that needed to be tackled. But I would add that it was not only a problem of um, inter-sectorial resource misallocation, but also intra-sectorial. So within sectors, we also have problems of resource misallocation. And how can we know that? We can know that if we have access to good data, if we are able to actually look into microdata and to see uh, what, what type of results can we get from there. And this is what we see from, for Portugal. So research misallocation both across sectors and within sectors. Of course, this is a trend which is also common to other OECD countries, but there are specificities for the case of Portugal, for sure. We had uh, problems in terms of governance of firms, in terms of governance of banks. We had excessive rents and so on. And this is an area where you see that action at EU level was very important with the banking union that now needs to be finalized. Action at national level was also very important with improvements on the judicial system, with a very insolvency framework and so on. But again, this links with the issue of education, of the quality of managers and so on. So my main point with this is that we need to get priorities right. We have a limited administrative capacity. We, we have a lim limited political capital. We have limited resources. We have limited time. And we really need to focus on those areas that matter the most. To be able to do this, we need good data. We, we really need access to microdata of good quality that allow us to answer some positive questions that we have on the effects of, of different reforms. I think we have come a long way. And as you said, Alessio, um, we have more and more evidence on European countries using these very rich micro databases, but more needs to be done. First, on the side of the suppliers of data, um, the situation in Portugal, for instance, has improved a lot. We have access to firm-level data. Um, we have a very good work-level uh, database, um, which is now go going through some problems in terms of data dissemination. But for instance, on tax authorities, we have no microdata available. Um, and this is a problem because then it means that we cannot really look deeply into the policies that are, that are being implemented. We cannot assess them and we cannot have a more informed debate because it's not only a question of getting the data, it's then also ensuring that we have a culture of discussing, of debating, of, of involving the academia, public bodies, the civil society in discussing these issues and in getting our, our priorities and our, our goals, because these are normative issues, our goals right. Very good. Uh, 
I would have a lot to say, but I'll resist the temptation uh, for later on, if, if there is time. Paul. Okay, so I, I, being an academic, I have a presentation, uh, just a kind of, uh, you know, let's, let's see. Okay, thanks a lot. So, uh, yeah, that's me. Uh, let's see. Okay, so I will start with a little bit of advertising, as Alessio was uh, saying before. So, uh, a few months ago, um, uh, a colleague of mine from Athens, uh, Dimitris Katsikas, and myself, we edited this book about economic crisis and structural reform in Southern Europe. And so, what, what I will discuss today is kind of some sort of uh, trying to kind of make sense of this book. And we, we got a number of, of, of chapters, unless you wrote one, about labor, product, banking sector reforms in most of the uh, southern European countries, uh, with particularly Spain, Portugal, Greece, and Cyprus. Uh, uh, Italy didn't make made it into the list because we had no structural reforms. Basically. So, uh, so it is pity. I was I was thinking of trying to write a paper or a chapter on Italy, but you know, then said what do we have. Well, it's really not much. So, so I will I will discuss about of the conclusion of these books, and uh, let's see. Okay, so the policy lessons. Now, of course, it's not easy. Uh, to kind of draw conclusions from uh, you know, many different types of reforms done in different countries with different institutions, in different economic conditions, with different types of government, orientation, competence, with different history of reform. So, you know, you know it's uh, kind of a, a lot of differences in, in all these episodes. But, but still, you know, the attempt is to, to ask uh, two questions. So the first question is really, what have we learned? And so can we identify some conditions which make reforms more successful? Okay, and where are the obstacles and so on? And the other one is more of a, you know, types of what are the kind of design, with, where, uh, what can you say about the design of policy? How should a policymaker, benevolent policymaker, design the policy and implement them to maximize the chances of success? So these were the two questions we kind of tried to give an answer to. Okay, and, <clears throat> oops. So, uh, the, to, to, to make a long story short, I mean, we, um, we draw a list of at least six points which are kind of heavily weighed in, in these two answers. And let me just go through them. The first is about the delay of the reform. The second is about the ownership. Uh, the third is the importance of the ex external constraint, meaning international financial institutions, then the timing when you do the reform is important, and then a crucial issue is really the balance between these structural reforms, which are supply side, and <clears throat> Anna was saying before, and the other part of what was going on during the crisis, namely fiscal consolidation. So these two things, you know, it's a kind of problematic relationship. And then the standard, you know, issue of sequencing. This is a long tradition in economics from the 80s, and I think we still have to learn some of the lessons, and maybe we we learn some, some a few few things more. So these are the, the crucial thing. I, I will go straight uh, into into this. So what we we know about the, the importance of delay is that you know uh, the longer the the, the 
the reforms are postponed, the worse. I mean, that's the kind of simple point. Uh, we know that all the economic crises of all kinds, <coughs> from you know default and banking crises and and other type of crises, just happen overnight. But they result from decades of imbalances. So they have a long history, and there are many issues here. And Portugal, Greece, Italy are example of kind of decades of very low productivity growth and low competitiveness. And we have, you know, kind of again, Portugal, Greece, Spain, and Italy are a good example of institutions, for example, in the labor market, were very inefficient. Uh, in particular, I focus on collective bargaining and the misallocation of, of resources there, which have been kind of lasting for decades without any attempt of reforms. Then the same for uh, entry barriers, inefficiency in the product market. And, and then we have, of course, the problems of inefficient supervision, nepotistic corporate governance and political interference, which are kind of, uh, kind of uh, uh, traits of this economy that have been lasting for 20, 30, 30 years. Uh, and the point is, you know, of course, the longer these long-term issues are, you know, are recognized, then the worse uh, it becomes to, to reform. And not only because it's more costly. I mean, typically, if you have a large budget deficit and you have a lot of debt, then once you have to raise taxes, you have to, to you know, crash the economy. But also because you have, you know, large resistance to reform the longer you have been, you know, postponing these reforms. And that's true from a political economy point of view from a banking sector with with uh, uh, non-performing loans, uh, with issues in unemployment and labor market dichotomy, and, and so on and so forth. So one crucial issue is really uh, uh, delay. That's the turns out to be very important when 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 the the, the the problems are recognized. Let me just move into the second important issue. Now, I don't like the the word ownership. It's you know, it's, it, in particular, international institutions use these terms, and to me, it has been just you know, kind of nonsense. But let me use this this term just to, to highlight one point. And the point is this. I think one of the worst um, implications of this delay is, is the, the cultural uh, and perverse illusions that it delivers to the public. So the, the illusion is that these institutions have been there for ages, for 10, 20, 30 years, and nothing really you know, was wrong. And then all of the crisis, all of, all of a sudden, we, we are in default. You know? So it can't be their fault. I mean, we lived with inefficient labor market institutions for so long. So you know, it cannot be their fault. It must be the fault of someone else. Maybe those who try to to reform this institution that are to blame. So this is the kind of cultural uh, and uh, very spread illusion that delay brings with it. And that's, I think, it's very, very, very dangerous. And of course, you can translate this into lack of ownership to some extent. And there are a lot of examples, I mean, uh, examples where reforms are backtracked. So you do try to do a, a reform, but then the next government, like in Italy today with the job sector of Renzi, are trying to undo the little that has been done the recent years. Um, and there are many examples, Greece and Spain for the banking sector reform. Uh, Cyprus is, is also an interesting case where you have a co conflict between 
institutions, uh, you know, on, on bank recapitalization, for example, that also has to do with this delay and, and the, the, the kind of lack of consensus that, you know, it's the other side of ownership, actually, it's the opposite. There are good, good cases of ownership, and some of the chapters in this book uh, kind of describe the, some examples like labor uh, reforms in Portugal and in Spain, for example. And then the difference is that when these reforms were finally uh, introduced, uh, they had a long history. So there was a debate uh, and some previous attempt to reform labor market or the banking sector in Portugal. So there was some sort of a, a awareness, and there was some sort of consensus uh, which was not present, for example, either in Italy or Greece and, and other countries. So I think this, this, I, this ownership stuff, in, you know, in, this, in this sense, I think it's, it's important. Let me move to the issue of external constraints. So, so what, uh, is it a good idea if someone, like an international financial institution, try to kind of, you know, force the reform in, in, into your mouth, you know, as, as we have seen many, many examples um, uh, during the, 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 the recent crisis? Well, yes and no. This is my answer. Uh, Yes, in the sense that it's always good to have for a politician to have a scapegoat. You can say, oh, it's all fault of someone else. It used to be the IMF, then it now has become European institutions. But, but you have to recognize that there, is, there are strong limits to what uh, uh, the external constraints can do in terms of enforcement, and in particular, in terms of implementation of the reform. So you can start the reform, but then you have to carry it over. And that's where these, you know, maybe the financial constraints is not very effective. And, and so kind of, I think the one, one thing that comes out from this, this chapter is that the external constraint is a pure substitute for ownership. Okay, it's a, an imperfect substitute for ownership, and because in particular there are problems at the implementation level. However, you know, it's, you know, it's better some some external constraint, constraint than nothing, because when there is no external constraint, okay, that it can even be worse. I mean, in the case of Cyprus, for example, try to kind of manage uh, uh, kind of some loan from from Russia for example you know turn out to be a kind of uh, delay in the reform now our prime minister is going to to China try to convince them that you know China should buy a lot of public debt Italian public debt I mean uh, you know there, there are a way that all politicians always try to circumvent constraint and and, and so not having constraint, it can be bad, can be pretty bad. The other thing is that too much of the constraint is even maybe worse. And, and here, I, I am, what I'm saying is that uh, what we have seen in many cases in Portugal, for what I understand, if you, if you read the, the EU report about the labor market reform in Portugal, you get to a, such a kind of level of micromanagement of exactly the kind of tiny measure, how many leave hours, um, you know, it's, it's just a, a nightmare. So I, I, I think that micromanagement to the level that we observed in Europe, I think particularly from the uh, European Commission, was uh, totally counterproductive. And, and, and to me, reading that from outside, is totally, you know, crazy. Totally crazy, okay? And let me, we are six points, I'm just, you know, four, uh, the number four. 
so I hope I more or less manage the time. So here is another kind of uh, uh, issue that has a long story in, in economic analysis. It is the, the issue of the timing of reforms. In particular, the question is, are crises good for reforms? So there, there are a number of papers that claim that, you know, during a crisis, the cost of non-reforming gets so high that government have to kind of implement reforms that turn out to be good for growth. Okay. Now, this is, is not entirely convincing, at, at least the example that we, we, we observe from the recent experience in Europe are not really convincing on, on, on this issue. And in particular, the answer is that the, if the crisis is already there and it's deep, uh, that's a very bad thing for reform. So it's very costly to implement some structural reforms, as Anna said correctly, are supply-side reforms in a situation of very high unemployment, recession, and, and, and uh, you know, and crisis. This is because obtaining social consensus on this is almost impossible. So you really hit a political constraint that is something that, you know, comes out as a kind of crucial thing into, into this, uh, in this area, which basically tells you you cannot, you cannot do the reform because it's uh, because you will never get enough vote in parliament because we'll never ha get enough consensus in the society and so on and so forth and I mean, Greece, I think, stands out as a good example. I mean, here, the, 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 the real problem, I think, and the, the big mistakes of international institutions and countries, other that oppose the, uh, an early debt restructuring, is that it really forced such a harsh fiscal consolidation that, in the end, played in the hands of the anti-reformers. So that was a big mistake, and, and you cannot really you know, force big structural reform if the country is already in, in a big uh, recession, okay? On the other hand, if the country is on the verge of recession, okay, so then the, the story about crisis being a good thing about uh, uh, for reforms makes more sense because then you say, well, we're not doing well and there is, you know, v you know kind of dangers ahead and, and then it may be uh, better. So uh, don't wait. The, the lesson of this is don't wait until you're really down into the recession to try to start. Start as soon as you can, at least for a political consensus point of view. Now, number five, here is the issue of, of how do you balance fiscal consolidation and structural reforms, okay? And, and there are different issues here. The first is we know that, you know, fiscal consolidation has short-run costs and structural reform has long long-run benefits. So uh, it doesn't seem a wonderful idea to start from fiscal consolidation. It should be a better idea if you could, if you could, you know, design the things to start from uh, a structural reform and then uh, when it, can, you know, you know, get some of the fruits, then you do the fiscal consolidation. Of course, this is not always possible, always never possible, but still, uh, this issue is important. We have examples, I think Greece is a case in point, where uh, we, had, uh, uh, we have a, empirical evidence, I'll show you, maybe I don't, will not ha uh, have time, but we have empirical evidence that structural reforms in the labor market were kind of, uh, had good effects in terms of lowering uh, price inflation and, and boosting employment, okay? But when you do the regression and stuff, it turns out that the effect both on employment and on prices of the of GDP or unemployment are much stronger. 
Okay. So if you start, what happened in Greece is that you could have had good, good effects from these structural reforms on employment and lower prices, but these good effects were really swamped completely by the, the fiscal solidation that you had uh, uh, contemporaneously. And so there was kind of, you couldn't see any good effects, basically. And that was also detrimental for the, cons the consensus. Okay. Then there is another point. Let me, uh, let me uh, kind of, uh, since I wrote this, <laughs> This, this part, let me kind of spend a little bit of more time, about the fact that, um, you know, you never have free lunches, you know, even in reforms, you don't have free lunches. And, and there, there is a clear trade-off in reforms. For example, in the labor market, uh, uh, what I claim, what we claim in, in, in one chapter of the, of the book is that, uh, the, let me just move to the, to the picture here, is that you have a trade-off between two features of the labor market. Okay, one feature is how resilient is the labor market to uh, a GDP shock, okay? And this is measured, I will not tell you how, uh, on the horizontal axis by this beta coefficient. This beta coefficient is basically, if you have a 1% shock in GDP, how much rise in unemployment do you get? Okay, so the higher is this beta, the more sensitive is the labor market to a GDP shock. So high beta is a country where you have, you know, a 1% GDP shock gets you, I don't know, Lithuania, a 0.5% increase in the unemployment rate. Okay, so that's a feature. Then you have this alpha thing, which is the persistence of unemployment. Okay, so uh, this is basically the, the first order correlation coefficient. So lag unemployment. So basically, a number close to one means that the unemployment rate or deviation from equilibrium is very persistent. Okay. So here you see a kind of some sort of trade-off between countries in in the eurozone. So it turns out that countries like Italy, for example, have kind of very small uh, beta, which means very small. They are very resilient. So a GDP shocks does not affect unemployment by much. Okay. However, it has a very high alpha, so basically, once you have this shock, it tends to persist a lot. Okay? So you have a whole range of countries. Some countries have, like Spain, for example. Spain is a kind of a country in which you have a strong uh, effect of, of recession on unemployment, but you have a very fast recovery. Okay? And Italy is the other way around. So it turns out that when you, you can measure the impact of structural reform in, in the labor and in the product market on, on these features of the labor market. And it turns out that structural reform have a good effect and a bad effect. The good effect is that make your, make your uh, unemployment react more rapidly. So you become, you know, you recover more, more rapidly. Okay, so the market becomes more flexible. So unemployment stay there for a short period. But the bad effect of structural reform is that you, when you have a shock, it hurts more. So you, you get a higher rise in unemployment because you know, firms uh, fire like crazy. Now they can't do it, right? So uh, you have to take into account this trade-off when you design a, a reform program because if you don't, uh, and you do the, the reform during the recession, you can, you can get you know, uh, the economy totally messed up because maybe you know, it can recover more, more, it will recover more rapidly, but in the meantime, you, you, know, you just 
you know, create mass unemployment, which is very bad, not only for the society, but also for the reform, right? Okay, so let me just close. Uh, I may have two minutes? Yeah, okay. One, One minute about the sequencing thing. And so uh, Anna correctly mentioned a political constraint, and let me rephrase maybe what she said or give me my, my, my thing, is that political capital for reformist governments is very limited and should not dis be dissipated. So I think, I think uh, uh, Danny Roderick wrote uh, extensively about that. And so the, what you, you as a policymaker should do, should identify some bottlenecks to growth. Maybe it's education in, in, uh, uh, in Portugal. Maybe it's inefficient bargaining uh, in Italy maybe is, I don't know, something which is, you can really identify as the bottleneck, and then you should do that. You should not dissipate your political capital doing everything, every possible reform across the board, because that is not an efficient use of your limited political capital, and the effects of, on growth may be limited. Okay? Then the, there is another constraint also that has been referred to before, which is, the burden of the adjustment is going to be there, okay, uh, but has to be perceived to be justly distributed. If you don't get that, you are in trouble, okay? And let me finish on that. Okay, thanks. Uh, very good. Thanks a lot, uh, Paolo. I was, uh, you went over time, but it's okay because you gave a lot of uh, very interesting uh, information. So I, uh, I resisted the temptation of stopping. Okay, sorry. Klaus, uh, I expect you to be Teutonic uh, on time. No, 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 uh, you just made a, mis a mistake because you lost your credibility. You said uh, Paolo could go over time because he was interesting. And as I'm interesting, and as I certainly think that I'm interesting, I will also go over time. <laughs> no, just to say thank you, uh, Alessio, and thank you, Bogle, for organizing this wonderful event, wonderful up to what I have heard. No? Uh, very, very good. My, my presentation is still outstanding. Disclaimer, like, like Anna said, I'm not speaking for the ECB or, or for the governing council, um, my personal views. Um, what I'm saying today is, is largely based on a report we published in June, and this report is a collective effort from, from a task force, from the whole, Euros, no, from the whole uh, ESCB, from the whole Euro system, and we also had some national central banks from outside the Euro system in the task force. Uh, which, were, which prepared this report on structural reform. So I'm not claiming that, that all of this work is mine. There was many, many very good contributions uh, to, from many people on this report, but I'm basing my, my remarks uh, on this report today. And uh, yesterday, I just want to mention, we had a very good discussion in the Commission, where in ECFIN, but several other uh, Director General's business areas were present. And I'm, uh, I was very positive, I was very positively surprised about the quality of this discussion about a broad set of structural reforms, institution, political economy. I just want to say that what I'm mentioning here, I'm aware that a number of these issues are discussed in, in Europe, in the Commission, and are going in the right direction. So I'm, I'm, it's not that I'm only, say, making these points to criticize um, European institutions. Uh, you, you, uh, Alessio, you, you mentioned this paragraph we have at every introductory statement, which, which Mario Draghi and before Jean-Claude Trichet was, was reading out. 
um, about the need for more structural reforms, and that was mainly the reason for the report. And uh, you may ask why does the central bank do a report about uh, structural policies? And the main reason is that we think socially beneficial structural policies have uh, are of great interest also for the central bank. Not least because they can support the smooth functioning of EMU, of our monetary union, and they can support the effectiveness and efficiency of monetary policy. So we have a chapter in our report, chapter three, I think, where we at length discuss the implications of structural policies for the functioning of monetary policy in EMU. So that is, say, the, 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 the angle which we have. But of course, we, we, we are also discussing other issues. Uh, a few further messages I would like to, to share with you. One is that, that uh, we have, we have a, a, a chapter two in the report where we say at length, uh, where we show at length how different, and you mentioned this, Paolo, how different countries are in certain features of economic outcomes, employment, unemployment, economic growth, and of input indicators. For example, institutional quality, uh, labor market, product market, institution, and so on. So we, we, we simply outline there the differences across EU countries with some other OECD benchmark countries, or, or benchmark, I would not say other countries, just to show the, 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 the huge opportunities which every Euro area country, every EU country has to, to improve uh, welfare, to improve uh, conditions in in, in by doing right structural policies. And of course, then the question is, and I fully agree with, the, with, with, with Anna and Paolo, to find the right uh, priorities. But there's no, there is no um, s limit, there's no scarcity of opportunities. Opportunities are many, many opportunities for reforms. And two issues which we mentioned here, just, I mean, there are many, many issues. I have to be very selective. One is uh, the big concerns about youth and long-term, especially youth, unemployment, how many people are not in education, training, or in employment. That is still, I would say, uh, shockingly high in, in many Euro area countries. And that, of course, if 10, 10 years after Lehman and, and, and five years or four years after the last uh, recession, if this is still the case, certainly there are structural reform possibilities there. And second, um, uh, big, big gaps in some, in many countries on certain aspects of the quality of institutions. And uh, let me, let me just say, uh, speaking about, about institutions, let me just say another very important message which we, which we came out in our discussions is that apart from some labor market reforms, apart from some specific reforms, most, almost all reforms will achieve what Anna said, uh, namely f more fairness or more equity and more efficiency. There are many, many reforms which will, if they are implemented, which will achieve where there's no trade-off. Like you have it to some extent, at least in the short term with some labor market reforms, there's no trade-off. You will achieve both. And I give you a list uh, which we have uh, in the report. Of course, I mean, and, and I would say, I would uh, support Anna, but to the extent that equity should be, should be pursued by ensuring equal or more equal uh, opportunity, opportunities, equal opportunities, equal chances for everybody. That is the way to ensure equity, to ensure fairness or equity by by uh, changing the, the outcome of a market process, that, that has limits, and you cannot do, do everything on that side. So there are different perspectives on how you, you ensure fairness, and I think the main way to ensure it is giving, giving better opportunities, equal opportunities to children or students from, from 
say, low-income, middle-income families uh, to, 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 for university. That's one example. Another example is reduce long-term unemployment with a labor market reform. Of course, this reform may have, may have side effects which should, which should be taken into account. Support integration of labor, uh, product, labor market prospects of vulnerable people. There are many reforms which will help uh, both efficiency and, and fairness. And reducing and addressing firms' excessive market power. In many cases, and you mentioned that, we have high, high rents of firms which can uh, exploit uh, market power and uh, uh, to high profit markups, uh, markups. All of the forms which address these issues will also address fairness or, or, or in inclusiveness. On the institutional reform side, uh, making public administrations more efficient so they can provide better services uh, to the normal people, that's normally something which helps efficiency and equity because the people mainly relying on public services are not the, the richest. Those who are relying on public services are the, the normal, often the people with vulnerabilities. Making, uh, fighting tax evasion and corruption is a, is a wonderful uh, area where you can help efficiently of an economy and at the same time help those who have less access to, to uh, I mean, those who are, who are, who are burdened by, by uh, tax evasion. There's a wonderful study, and you talked about microdata, Anna. There's a wonderful study where I think it's, it's colleagues from Gabriel Sukman, Sukman is a co, co collaborator, works together with, with Piketty, and Gabriel Sukman has, this, and, and these people, some Danish uh, or Norwegian experts, uh, academics, do a study using the Panama paper, and they go to Sweden where they have very good microdata, and they can link the Panama paper with the microdata. I mean, this is a wonderful study where they have the data, namely in Sweden. I mean, it's not that this problem only exists in Sweden, but there they have the data. They go there, link the Panama paper with the statistics statistics, the confidential statistics from the tax administration and find out that those who evade taxes are the rich of the richest. And that the share of, I mean, of course, you know, if you have a lot of income, you can easily, you will evade taxes. But in percent of your income, the study comes out with saying that the tax evasion is, is highest with rich people. And so, so if you have better tax administration, if you fight uh, uh, corruption, you will not only help efficiency of your economy, you will also go in the equity direction. And that's very important. And we have many problems in Europe there, and Anna mentioned that. And finally, uh, um, rent, one, one has to say that rent-seeking behavior generally benefits large firms, influential associations, and well-organized vested interests. And and uh, this normally is at the, at the uh, burdens, uh, uh, this burdens normal, uh, normal people. Let me uh, make another remark on, on the result of our work, namely uh, that there is no, that there is no, uh, uh, as we would say, There's no one-size-fits-all one approach. Uh, it is, it is, and this came out a bit of, of what, what Anna and Paolo said. It, it's very important to prioritize those reforms which are necessary and, 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 and linked to the preferences of, of the specific uh, say country or region. You cannot, you cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach. And that, that, that of co course, um, makes it uh, difficult I mean that, of course, is the challenge for the European for the European framework. Let me uh, say, in, and that, that links to what Anna said. 
in the current European framework, most structural policies, most uh, uh, institutional policies will uh, will be responsibility at the national and the subnational level. That that, that is that is the, the situation which we are currently facing, and that means that uh, we also have to be clear that if, and that bit by Paolo with the delay of reforms uh, hinted at. If you have suboptimal outcomes, if employment grows, income grows, uh, is, is weak in, in a country, the responsibility is still predominantly with the policies not implemented or, 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 or not optimally implemented in, in this country for possibly many years, or the reforms not being undertaken. And of course, we have the problem that, uh, that those who are responsible for say, suboptimal policies, they like to blame uh, Europe. Sure. So it's so easy to blame Europe if, uh, or the Euro, or Brussels, or, or other or European institutions. It's so easy to blame European institutions uh, uh, and thereby distract from the fact that the disappointing economic outcomes or uh, the social problems you have in your country are mainly, are mainly uh, predominantly caused by current and especially past uh, uh, economic policies not being, being optimal. And now the, the question in, in this respect, a, a question is what, what, can we, what can we do? What can Europe do to, can Europe do anything in, in this regard? And I will uh, to, to kind of reduce this problem of, the, of being blamed for something for which it is not, uh, at least not mainly responsible. And I fully agree with Anna, of course, we need to supplement national reform efforts with a good framework at the European level. Our report was mainly on national reforms because we were talking about structural reforms in the, and institutional reforms in the more narrow sense. We are not talking about EMU deepening. That's a different subject and there I agree with Anna. Uh, before coming to what Europe could do quickly, the political economy of reforms was mentioned here, and that's our last chapter in the report, and we, 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 devote, we devote some discussion on this. And you may say, you may think, oh, we have so many opportunities in many, 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 most all, all EU countries for reforms, and we see so little being done in the last years. We, we, we got something done between 11 and 30 mainly. The, the so-called program countries did quite something in terms of reforms. You are right. Some reforms came too late. Some reforms were not really implemented. Some reforms were unwound later. But all in all, what we have seen in the program countries was good progress on, on many areas. But out, uh, later, in the last years, we, we, the progress has, has slowed down, has almost stopped. And we have also not seen many reforms, say, say very few reforms in Germany after after the big reforms, labor market, 10, 12, 14 years ago. No, it was not labor market, pension reforms we had in Germany 14, uh, 14 15 years ago, 12 years ago. And since then, the, the reform momentum has very much uh, slowed down. Now, you may ask, why is this the case? Uh, and there are two, say there are various answers, but two answers which you find uh, discussed in, in, among others in the chapter on political economy. One is very powerful vested interests have ability to, to, to delay or to hinder reforms even if they represent only a small minority of the voters or of the population. That's the problem. If the, if the majority of people would 
feel we would suffer under the reforms and therefore we go against it, that would be fully understood. But we have interests who are so effective that they can stop reforms even though they are just a small part of the electorate. And the second argument, uh, the second reason is, and you mentioned this, uh, and I, I fully support that, 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 that many people lost trust in the ability uh, of the government to implement reforms which are fair, which are helping the majority. And here we come back, and you mentioned, Paolo, this, this, this uh, um, vicious circle. You delay the forms, a government delays the forms, push it, push, pushes the necessary work to the next government or to the government afterwards. And, and in this way, the burden on the coming governments becomes bigger and bigger, because not only does the new government after four or eight years inherit very weak economic conditions because growth is not picking up, employment is not as it should be, but also that the people have, have lost trust in the government, and now the costs for this later government are even bigger to do the reforms. And here let me, let me come to, to one observation, which is in our report, is we have still, we fear that we have still too many abilities for governments, for the current incumbent government, to hide the costs of non-action, to hide the costs of, of, of bad policies of delaying reforms. One example is that in our government, in, in our budgetary procedures in governments, you, you know, and also the, the, the Maastricht criteria, you know that implicit government debt is not, on, is not, core, is not official debt. So, Whenever there is a chance for the government to, so, or, or we have implicit government debt in, in uh, for instance, the pension system or others, you know, we promise, the government promise something to increase pension in the future, but there's no, no uh, government debt figure going up. Hmm? So you can, you, can, you can do policies where you, where you hide the government debt uh, implications and burden resulting from certain policies. And, and, and another example is, uh, and that is of course well known to everybody, is the implicit guarantees or hidden contingent liabilities that are often not uh, subject to parliamentary control or to public scrutiny. And we all know that these played a role in the financial crisis. And what happens? The government, and that's so important for the reform debate, the government can today not set up a proper deposit insurance system. And that's why, and I will tell you why we are for 80s. So, so you have no insurance system, but you have implicit guarantees. So the banks, the financial sector, the firms know if something bad happens, we may get some bailout, some subsidy from the public sector. This anticipation means that you have this anticipation means uh, that, that the guarantees are not only hidden from official debt statistics, but they are, they are also associated with incentives for the private sector, possibly the banks, which go in the wrong direction, which go in the direction of moral hazard, rent-seeking, or overly excessive risk-taking. And that's what we, to some extent, observed then in the financial crisis. Uh, as there was no explicit, fully funded deposit insurance system, uh, banks took too much, could take too much risks. The cost of these risks would fall on the taxpayer. The taxpayer had no chance to debate it in a normal democratic government uh, process because this debt was never explicitly uh, put to parliament because it was implicit. And so you not only had this burden shifting from, from uh, I mean, if you have implicit guarantees, you shift effectively 
wealth from the taxpayer to the bond and shareholders of the firms. But that you don't see in the, in the books of the government, in the debt, you see it in the share prices being higher than otherwise. And so those who are gaining, they know the game. But those who are losing, they have no access because these things are not discussed. Why, why are making so, so much, uh, describing this issue so much? This is not only in this example. There are many ways where the government can hide the cost of delay, the cost of not doing the proper structural policies from the public. And then the public, as you, as you rightly described, wakes up four or eight years later and doesn't know what, what happened. Hmm? So that is where, where the European institutions come in. That is where the Commission can come in. And like Anna said, more microdata, more, more an, uh, analysis being delivered in an, in an impartial way, to the, in an open way to the, to the populations uh, in the countries. Because in the end, many of these reforms need to be done at the country level. So in order to be able to do it well, the voter, the citizens need to have the proper information at their hand. And there, I think, European institutions could, uh, could, do, could do a lot and are doing a lot, like benchmarking, like comparing uh, different situations across different countries, telling people where institutions are not good compared to other countries, and then letting the, the normal democratic discussion go, as Anna describes, because you need uh, democratic ownership for these reforms. You cannot uh, uh, kind of impose these reforms from the top. You can only start a discussion like the European semester does uh, uh, very well, I think, and hope that this discussion go to the public uh, sector, to the public in the national, uh, in the national uh, uh, rounds, in the national debates, and then lead to a parliament government decision in the, in the right direction. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Klaus, for this uh, this overview of uh, of your report, uh, this was a lot that is on your plate. And while you you guys digest uh, all the information you've uh, you've received, and you and probably you have uh, a few questions uh, to ask, I'd uh, have just a few questions for one for each, very quickly, on which I'd like to push you a bit further. Uh, to you, Anna, you've stressed the importance of diagnostics uh, and of getting things right at the local level because every country has its own specificities, which would lead me to say, okay, like different countries have different economic models with which I think you would agree. Uh, but then in a way you referred to OECD rankings and you told me Portugal is uh, at this or this position on an OECD ranking. Now there are some that would say uh, like Landbridge at Harvard, that these rankings should be abolished. Because what you're doing is that you have a unique model in mind, and that what then people do is they look at the ranking and they say, haha, education has to be a bottleneck because Portugal is not performing well. I'm sure you disagree with that, but I'd like to hear why. To Paolo, you talked about priorities as well, and you spoke about the politics, political economy as well. Um, it feels to me like priorities, there are economic priorities that you described and that there are political priorities that you described which rest on a series of uh, realizations given the majority of in Parliament, given the situation, the crisis and so on. How do you square the two? If the, do you just look at two sets and you look for the intersection? Is that how you, you determine the bottlenecks or, or what else? And to Klaus, I know you mentioned it, but I know that you have a particular penchant for institutional capacity um, as a fundamental requirement for policy reforms to take place and to 
happen in uh, in a successful way. Uh, and my perception is this is the kind of reforms you should do or you would want to do in peace times because they take time to you know, bring your, uh, your public administration up to speed. What do you do when you don't have that? When do you, what do you do when you arrive in Greece and the public administration is not up to speed, but you are in a crisis and you have to implement reforms? Uh, do you try to go through the timing of it? And so you do first the administrative uh, reform and try to improve the public administration, or you just power through with product market uh, growth enhancing reforms? These were a few points. You can uh, you can decide whether you want to pick on them or not. But if there are any questions, uh, please. There's a hand over there. We will follow. Uh, if you agree, the the three rules of questions that they have at the uh, Kennedy School of Government. The first rule is uh, please identify yourself. The second rule is a question is one question, and the third rule is a question ends with a question mark. Please. Thank you. My name is Natasha Arvanetti. I'm uh, from the European Committee of the Regions, but uh, this is not the hat I'm wearing right now. Being in ECFIN from 2012 until 2014, and a member of the Minister of Cabinet, uh, Minister of Finance Cabinet in Greece in 2015, I have a lot to say from what I heard here today, but I will not comment on that. I have three questions, one for each panelist. Okay. The first one is for uh, Mrs. Thirty. I'm not sure I understood the link you mentioned between the EU and globalization. The second one is for Professor Manasi. Uh, you mentioned that um, in uh, implementing reforms, the most important thing is delay. Uh, do you think that uh, there was a micromanagement on behalf of the Troika that hampered uh, the implementation of um, structural reforms? And my last question is to uh, Herr Mersch, uh, Mazuch, I'm sorry. Uh, I remember in your hearing at the European Parliament uh, on the uh, role of the Troika in the first program, you mentioned that some reforms could not go through due to vested interests. So I'm asking you, how do you think structural reforms can penetrate and break up vested interests? Thank you. Thank you. Gentleman over there. Still the European Committee of the Regions, but just one question on a different note. Uh, the European Commission has recently put on the table a proposal um, of something called Reform Support Program, which has two legs. One leg is not new, uh, technical assistance, uh, in this specific case provided by the Structural Reform Support Service. And uh, the second leg is the innovation, is uh, a financial contribution uh, that is a lump sum given to a member state willing to engage in a uh, comprehensive and uh, and uh, substantial reform uh, package um, uh, with the idea that this financial contribution uh, is not to cover direct costs of such reforms, rather it is to provide uh, 
budgetary relief uh, with the idea that this would allow the, 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 the concerned government to, in a sense, by the political consensus, uh, this is obviously said in my own words, uh, uh, for these reforms. Now the question is, under what conditions uh, is this uh, innovation likely to work? There's a question over there. Lady. Um, I'm Bernadette Segor. I'm the former General Secretary of the European Trade Union Confederation. I have one question and one suggestion. Uh, my question is for Mr. Mazur. I don't know if I pronounce your name properly. I'm sorry if I don't. Did I understand you well? Did you say that apart from labor market reforms, all structural reforms would achieve more equality? Because if I understood you well, it means that you acknowledge that labor market reforms are increasing inequalities. And this statement would have very serious consequences. So I just want to be sure that this is what I heard. And my suggestion is, um, with a smile, there is so much of an unanimous support for reform that I wonder if the economist should not go through a psychoanalysis and check if their support is not just because it is politically correct um, or for other reasons. I'm really surprised that amongst economists, I just, at least the, the one I, I hear, there's nobody saying, well, are we sure? Thank you. Um, Alejandro Mato for the Spanish Media Capital Radio. Um, when doing the, the reforms, there was a, the banking reform in the whole continent, and there was a consolidation uh, in the last years. And it's true that maybe at some point it was necessary, considering the overcapacity of branches and small entities that were in the, in the continent, but maybe we are not going directly or leading to the to the model of the United States. I'm thinking about Lehman Brothers, these too big to fail entities. So are we not taking the, uh, a bad lesson from the, from the crisis or maybe taking a path in that lesson that is not completely right? Thank you. Final question uh, over there. Nico Kepens from the Commission, DigiDevco Development Corporation, International Corporation. Uh, the crisis has led us led to a very negative perceptive perception of what the EU and, and in, by extension the Western world is. Uh, what is necessary to improve that perception that the rest of the world uh, again trusts us and, and also helps us to to uh, implement the SDGs, for instance? SDGs. Um, okay, one final question over there, and then you'll take what you want. Belgium Ministry of Finance, uh, is the lack of data the main problem to implement structural reforms? I'm thinking about tax evasion. Okay, should we go in reverse order? Uh, I'd say 
pick uh, the questions you want to pick, and you have like five minutes each. Yes, um, on, your, on your question, um, institutional capacity, uh, what can you do if there's a crisis and you have, um, you, have, you've, you have limited capacity of the government, you have possibly uh, issues of, of rent-seeking or cronyism or what? Um, that's, that's a very tough question because these issues, these institutional issues, strictly speaking, uh, are on the borderline or fall outside what, say, traditionally the IMF was doing for macroeconomic adjustment. Macroeconomic adjustment was mainly, of course, some structural reforms, but mainly fiscal, fiscal adjustments, some fiscal, fiscal structural reforms in order to, to ensure that, that you have uh, sustainable fiscal policies and then you, you can do some other reforms. But these deeper institutional reforms uh, for this, um, for this, it is difficult to, in a time frame of a normal program of two or three years, it is, it is difficult to, to convincingly change all of these, uh, uh, yeah, to, to, to bring institutions which are relatively weak up to the, to the best standards. So th that takes time, and you have to work in that direction, but you cannot uh, hope that you, you have to start working, but you cannot hope to achieve everything in, in, a, few, in a few years. This is something which, which, which takes time. On the, on, uh, I think, uh, Natasha Panetti, was it your name? Um, on, the, um, on the vested interest, it's a bit, a bit the same question. It is, it is um, in the end, the main... If you have vested interests in your countries and you have this everywhere, I'm not saying that this is a particular problem in one or another country, you, it's mainly up to the, the society in this country to address it and to, to be aware of it. Of course, it's problematic, as we have also alluded to in our report, if these vested interests have strong influence on media and thereby on, on, the, on the thinking or the information which is provided to to the citizens and the voters. Uh, there's one issue where Europe could possibly, say, Im could possibly have a ben beneficial I impact on the qualities of institutions, and that, of course, also on the on on the power of vested interests, because vested interests often have power if things are not fully transparent, if accountability of politicians is not clearly defined, and then they can do something in favor of of some vested interests instead of in favor of the majority of the society. So what could what what possibly one could do? We have a, we have a, a, a remark or a paragraph in our in our report saying that considerations could be given to linking the funds, future EU transfers and funds, uh, to improvements in the quality of national and regional institutions that are relevant for the successful implementation and use of these funds. So I'm not saying that you may, Europe may link, say we are, we are giving structural funds to build a bridge or a road or a railway, and to say this we link to a labor market reform. I would not say that this is good. I would say you can, of course, link it to a reform in the areas which are responsible and which are important that these structural funds, in this case infrastructure, are efficiently used, not used for cronyism or, or, or corruption, but really efficiently used. 
where the EU, the Commission, has a strong argument. We want that this is taxpayer money from, from European taxpayers, that this is efficiently used. So if you want to have it, we need full control. You need to have the best standards in, in procurement. We want e-procurement. We want full transparency about all negotiations of the contracts uh, which are used to build the bridge and so on. If you have this transparency, you have more accountability and the risks that, that, that the funds are misused are, are, are reduced. And in this way, you, you can address the vested interests. In this case, say, from the construction sector, which everywhere has quite strong vested interests, because then there's more transparency and the risk that some funds are not efficiently used is, is reduced. That's why Europe could do something, but I would not think that Europe could do everything. It's mainly the responsibility of the national, of the societies, of the civil society, of the, of the electorate to do that. Perhaps if I, a final remark to the colleague from, 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 from ETUC, you, you said, you were, you were at ETUC. Uh, I have, I have not said that labor market reforms uh, increase inequality, but there, there is for the following issue, that of course if a labor market reforms that is aimed at reducing unemployment and will reduce unemployment, such a reform may boost labor supply, which at the same time may say to this party to reduce the real wage of those who have a job. So you have some conflict. Those who are unemployed may be happy because after some time they get a job. Those who have a job, due to the increase in labor supply, Sata this paribus may see their income lower than other, otherwise. So you have some, some redistribution between certain groups of, of workers and unemployed, which may not be, be, be the best from those who have a job. Therefore, you need to complement such reforms in a package with other reforms. And in our report, we have a, a nice study from the German reforms in the in the early 2000s, labor market reforms, fiscal reforms, and there they show in this study that the labor market reforms alone would have reduced somewhat the, 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 the income of a certain group, namely, and this is a model of these people, people who are liquidity constrained, so people who are not very rich, who have not financial capital, cannot easily get a credit from the bank. But if you combine the, the German labor market reform with the fiscal, uh, uh, fiscal reform which reduced taxes on labor, that then helped to, 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 to uh, overcome this problem. So you have to go into very detail. You cannot bluntly say labor market reforms are bad. You have to get them into a package where those who may see their real wages relatively uh, uh, lower due to the reform for some time, uh, uh, that they, they get uh, compensated via, say, lower taxes on, on, on labor, for example. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I start with the question about uh, priorities, political and economic. Uh, you know, it's a difficult question. Maybe my answer could be that kind of the way I, I look at this issue is really uh, what is the constraint, and the constraint is really the political constraint. So maybe kind of the approach is, you know, you, you get the government to sit around the table and say, you know, oh, you know, we have a set of proposals for reforming this and this, and uh, which one will get 50% of the vote or support, say, in Parliament, okay? And then you have, you know, we cut down the number of reforms to those who may, will make it in, in Parliament, and then we rank them in, in terms of efficiency and say which is the, the most important for growth. And then you say, you know, subject to the political constraint, let's put our capital in, in this, in the one that will be education or whatever. So that, that would be the way, you know, and just, you know, just maximizing 
with a constraint, you know, it just it would be the same, the, the same logic, although, you know, it's maybe it's a bit abstract. Then I had a question from, the second question from a lady there about what I meant by delay and micromanagement. So by delay, I, I mean that, uh, simply the fact that <clears throat> it's very difficult for the public in general to kind of attribute, uh, you know, uh, correctly identify the causes of a of a crisis, like like in Greece. I mean, Greece had you know had grown for 15 years before the crisis, of course, just uh, you know incurring in debt and you know consumption and without without any gains in productivity. So things seems to be wonderful. I mean, Greece had done pretty well, and all of a sudden, you know, all these gains in 10 years, you know, were dissipated in a few years. So it's very hard from someone from 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 a Greek from Greece to say well what, what are the causes of that and uh, and to say well it's your institutions which you did not reform because you start to blame something that did not happen you know it's hard to see you know <laughs> uh, you know we had this kind of Sherlock Holmes uh, thing I don't know it was the mask Baskerville handdog or one of those things so the, the issue there was that the hound the dog did not bark you know and that meant that he had recognized the, the killer. But so the, the the solution was to find something that didn't happen, and that would give you the the, the solution. So it's very hard to do this. And so, and and so the more are, the the reform are delayed, the harder it becomes to identify the reason for that and to blame the wrong people. So those who want to change the things, maybe it's too late. So that, that is what I meant. About micromanagement, uh, I think for what I read, you know, there was an issue there in Greece as well. And my, uh, my kind of suggestion, I mean, or orientation would be to set kind of broad lines for reforms and then leave some space for the government to, to exert its kind of uh, uh, will, you know, or popular mandate, at least within the constraints. And, and surely this was this is not, for what I can say, was not done. Then <clears throat> there was a, a question about, um, I, th I thought it interesting. Are you economists so sure about about the structural reform? You know, after all the disaster we have seen, you know, and and I would say that. Uh, the, the, I mean, uh, Kurt gave some some example of the fact that <clears throat> it's always better to have a larger pie and then think about how to divide it, than just be happy with a smaller pie and then maybe you know if it becomes smaller you you can you can argue even more. So the, I think the philosophy to some extent is is to to try to see if there there are reforms that are you know uh, good for grow, growth. And at the same time, so that was the, the missing part, just to, to try to ensure an equal division of the pie, rather than say, oh no, it's, you know, there are costs of having a higher pie, let's, let's just, uh, you know, be happy with the, how do you say, degrowth, uh, negative growth, I don't know, the happy degrowth, yeah. whatever. So I think that's, this is shared by, this is shared by economists, whether you may agree or not, but the terms that, you know, in terms of welfare, it's better to have higher consumption than lower consumption. So that, that's, that, that's the theoretical statement that the most economists would agree. I personally subscribe to that, but maybe you say, you know, there are things that are not marketable and everybody's happy, you know, loving children and so on and so forth, which I also agree that you cannot measure with GDP. 
fine, but still, but still, I would subscribe to the general thing. So I think that's the, the thing. And then the, fi the final uh, answer to, I mean, one, the, I'll pick another, another question is about the banking reforms. Is are we not going toward the kind of uh, uh, American model? Uh, and then presumably you have in mind some sort of agglomeration taking place in most banking sector. Uh, there is the risk, I think. There is a concrete risk of that. We are going too far in, the, in trying to copy the American, the American model, which had a lot of problems. But these are, I think, problems with uh, uh, supervision, basically. And uh, the question is, can we get the benefits of efficiency and, and not be kind of trapped? Into, into the supervision uh, problem. And I mean, when I look at Italy, for example, we had some recent reforms and this very small regional banks were really a source of corruption, uh, you know, credit given to the friends, uh, misallocation results, and all these small, the small bank uh, failures that we had in Italy were really, uh, you know, had a, prob a serious problem of Political interference and so on and so forth. So in that, you know, having a, a you know larger banks, I think may may be relatively good, provided that there is an independent supervision uh, that makes sure that we don't go to the kind of extremes and unregulated or not sufficiently regulated model of the U.S. I will stop here, and also there are other questions, interesting questions. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you all for your questions, starting with yours, Alessio. My point is that I mentioned one OECD ranking, PISA, PISA scores, and not others which are very popular, like the Employment Protection Legislation Indicator, the, the Product Market Re Regulation Indicator, and that was not by chance, because indeed I think that some of these indicators, by just simply trying to boil down everything to a single number, are an oversimplification and cannot really capture all the dimensions of, of product markets or of labor markets in our, in our countries. Still, maybe more than the rankings, I think that OECD has a wealth of analytical work which can actually be very informative at national level and, and we should really start from that because the type of horizontal assessments that the OECD does uh, with a very rigorous uh, econometric approach with very high quality data is very informative for then the national assessment that we also need to do. So I see it more or less as compliments. I'm not a fan of those uh, rankings. I think that some are still better than others, but Indeed, they can be oversimplifications, and also the important thing is how can we use them then in our assessments? Just to use a single figure and to try to find out correlations between those um, ranking indicators and, and GDP growth, for instance, I think that's meaningless. There's nothing you can extract from that. If you, can, if you really want to know more about structural reforms, you have to go into the detail of specific reforms in a specific um, economic context and then make your assessment with the use of national data. Then, uh, on your question, on this link that I was making between EU and globalization, basically my point was that if we look into survey data, so into opinion uh, of, of EU citizens, what we see is that there's a link between those that state that they are, they are against the EU and that are against globalization. So this sentiment is usually something that you see at the same time. 
And what I meant with that is that the basic fear that is that is under under these these two sentiments is the same. It's because basically these people feel that that they are losing something, and they see it as basically two sides of the same coin. Uh, that that was my point there. Then on the on the question on the reform support program from from the Commission. I truly believe that we have a lot to learn from each other. So that countries in the EU, we have many differences, but we also have many similarities. And well, in, in many things, we operate under the same framework. And so I think that we can, we can learn from each other. We can learn from the diversity that we have in the EU. So the idea of countries looking at, at other country experiences and, and getting something out of that, I think that's indeed um, a very important uh, point. Then, on the, on the financial contribution to reward reforms, or, or the way you put it, to make reforms easier, there I have some concerns if, if this comes with some conditionality attached, and I think this links a bit to what Klaus mentioned uh, in, his, in his intervention, which is, if that means that then you are imposing certain reforms, certain specific re reforms, irrespective of national consensus, irrespective of national economic structures, then I don't think this is an, a good idea. Still, overall, my impression is that um, there are those countries that benefit more from the euro than others, and with that we need to do something. So if we are talking about uh, funds, structural funds, financial contributions that aim at actually address those uh, asymmetric benefits that were created, then I'm in favor. If they are linked to specific policies, which in the end are, in my view, uh, normative issues, then, then, then I, take, I take an issue with that. Um, finally, on, on the point on, are we sure that we have a consensus on, on reforms? That's why, that's why precisely I started my intervention with, with, with trying to, to, to figure out what exactly do we mean when we say structural reforms. Because, well, it's very difficult not to agree with the idea that we, we want to improve our institutions. If it's something as broad as that, well, well, yes, if there's scope to improve our, our, our institutions, we want, we want to, to, to use it, we want to take advantage of that. But then I'm not so sure if I agree with Paolo on the issue that increasing the size of the pie is always a good idea, and then we am at redistributing it in the, in the, in the best way possible. I really think that, well, reality as, as, or, or the evidence that we have is that sometimes what you see is an increase in inequality which in the end is not addressed. There's a promise that we will we'll then later on uh, handle it, but we never do. And, and this creates tensions which then are, are, the way I see it, probably irreversible in terms of our democratic processes. And so the, the lack of data, is it the main problem? Well, the lack of data is, is, is one solution. No, we need data to be able to say, uh, to give more than opinions on the outcome of the different reforms. But in the end, it's a choice of our societies to, to decide to go one way 
or the other. Microdata can, can help us to have a more informed debate, to have a more concrete idea on the different impacts of the different reforms, and when and then it's a, it's a political uh, decision to, to, to decide on the way forward. Thanks a lot, uh, Anna. I have to say, if there is one uh, common element that I heard in all your presentations and I was very happy about, is this idea that there is country specificity, that every country is different, and therefore that packages cannot be standardized. Now, I'm always afraid when we mention every country is different because the nihilistic consequence of that statement could be there's very little we have to learn from uh, experiences because every setting is different, every moment is different. But I have to say, at least from my side, I learned uh, quite a bit in terms of general lessons that were appropriately targeted at a general level, but not too wide, at least from my point of view. So I had uh, two missions today to learn something about structural reforms and make them disagree. And Anna was disagreeing with Paolo at the end, so I feel my mission is, uh, is achieved. Thanks a lot for coming and staying uh, a bit longer today. <laughs>